two years, a Harvard Medical School study found that nearly two-thirds of teens admit to having anger attacks involving the destruction of property, threats of violence, or engaging in violence. And it's not just teens who are becoming more hostile. Researcher Ellen Galinsky interviewed 100 children and youth from grades 3 to grade 12 and asked them to rate their parents on a number of issues. Anger management was the most poorly ranked category on the parental report card. My mic's not on? It's green. Okay, well, I just can't walk around as much this morning. I'll have to use my loud mouth. <laughs> it's not just, oh, so we were talking about teens and their parents and their parent parental report cards. More than 40% of kids gave their moms and dads a C, D, or F for controlling their temper when the U's did something that makes their parents angry. Driving is an activity where an increase in anger is creating increasingly dangerous encounters. In 2016, an American Automobile Association study found that 51% of survey respondents admitted to purposefully tailgating. I saw one of those last night that just took my breath away. 47% confessed to yelling at another driver. 45% of respondents disclosed they had honked to show annoyance or anger. Am I kind of getting close to home here? 33% revealed that they had made angry gestures toward another driver, and I don't think that just means an angry face. 24% admitted to blocking another vehicle from changing lanes. Get this. In addition, a few drivers even confessed to having lost it by getting out of their vehicle to confront another driver. This happened to me. I was on the receiving end of that about a year and a half ago or even purposefully ramming another vehicle. My goodness, why are we such an angry society? Well, to answer that question, we need to ask, what causes anger? One of the most common causes of anger is hurt. It could be physical pain or, more often, emotional suffering. It may be due to relational conflict. I may feel rejected or unable to gain the approval of someone important to me. There's sometimes a sense of superiority underneath a lot of our anger. We just can't believe what's happening to us. We deserve so much better, don't we? Another root cause of anger is frustration. Things aren't going my way. The truth is, if I'm willing to admit it, I'm selfish. My schedule is tyrannizing me. The checkout line hasn't moved in five minutes. Someone flies by my car to the end of the merge lane and then cuts me off on the road. My kids never do what I tell them. I feel helpless, frustrated, and angry. Fear is another trigger for anger. Jesus and his disciples once got into a storm on the Sea of Galilee, and what was Jesus doing? <laughs> Sleeping. Mark 4.38 tells us Jesus' disciples woke him with angry voices demanding, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? How does Jesus deal with their anger? Does he ask, why are you so angry? No, he asks, why are you so afraid? We're grumpy as we're paying the bills. Why? Because we're fearful we may not have enough to make ends meet. 
We remount our teenage son because he gets the car home five minutes late. We were secretly fearful he had been in an accident. We resent our boss because we're worried that his or her arbitrary decision could eliminate our job. Fear can lead to anger. When you and I are angry, we need to ask the question, what's the real issue here? Because whatever is behind the anger is what you and I need to deal with, with God's help. As emotional hurt, frustration, and fear have increased because of the brokenness in our world, so has anger. But blowing a gasket is not new to our modern-day culture. Anger in human relationships has been present since humankind chose to rebel against God and go our own way. We read in Genesis that it was anger that led Cain to kill his brother Abel. Anger was also a reality in human relationships in Jesus' day. He chose to talk about it in his Sermon on the Mount, the sermon we're currently studying in the book of Matthew. I'm going to ask you to do something. I ask you to stand together, and we're going to read together again Jesus' words to his disciples today on the topic of anger. Let's read together aloud from the Sermon on the Mount. Here we go. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. I assure you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Thank you. Please be seated. Jesus had said to his disciples, just before the words we just read, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Starting with the verses we just read, Jesus describes the kind of righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. The kind of godly attitudes and actions found in the lives of those who have embraced the kingdom of heaven and have become a city on a hill. Pastor Grant reminded us last week that the religious leaders were focused on legalistic external obedience, but they failed to embrace an inner obedience of the heart. Jesus called them hypocrites. In the passage we read and in those that follow that we're going to study in the weeks ahead, Jesus looks at several examples of how the religious leaders did this and how correct interpretation and application of the law must be based on proper intent and motive. In each example, Jesus starts with the phrase, you have heard it was said, blah, 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 blah. But I say to you, blah, 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 blah. 
Each example focuses on some dimension of human relationships. In each example, Jesus refers to a legal text from the Old Testament. Then Jesus either cites or alludes to a current popular interpretation or a traditional practice of the Old Testament passage he's quoted. That current understanding on our practice is causing the people to apply the law in a faulty manner. Again, as Pastor Grant reminded us last week, Jesus didn't reject the Old Testament law. He came to fulfill it. Jesus is contrasting his interpretation of the Old Testament with faulty interpretations and applications. He's revealing the intended meaning and application of the law. Well, Jesus refers to several Old Testament texts in this passage about anger when he states, You have heard that it was said to our ancestors... Do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. When he says that, he's referring to Exodus 20, verse 13, the seventh of the Ten Commandments. It reads very simply, do not murder. Jesus also alludes to a common understanding based on a number of Old Testament passages that require judgment for murder. In the Old Testament, murder involved premeditation and deliberateness. Murder wasn't applied to killing animals, defending one's home, accidental killings that we would, we would refer to as manslaughter, the execution of murderers by the state, or involvement with one's nation in certain types of war. The biblical penalty for murder was always death. Jesus says, you heard it's wrong to murder and that murderers must be judged. But I tell you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Jesus here goes beyond the crime to the kind of heart that generates the behavior. Anger that would generate murder, if not restrained, is the spiritual equivalent of murder. 1 John 3.15 tells us that hating someone else is akin to murder and that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Jesus says that if we're angry with a brother, we're guilty of murder and deserve judgment. By the way, the word brother in Matthew doesn't refer to a biological sibling, but to a fellow disciple, a fellow Christian. Jesus is not excusing anger against non-believers here. But he's stressing that anger is most inappropriate against those in Christ's body. In other words, it's particularly bad to get angry against other Christians who have also been spared God's wrath. Jesus then declares, And whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. With these statements, Jesus makes clear that he's talking about anger. The word raka, which we translate fool, was a quasi-swear word in Aramaic, and it means empty-headed. It was a word of contempt used by an angry person. The word moros, which we translate as moron, also was a word of contempt as it carries overtones of immorality and godlessness as well as idiocy. In these scenarios, we see several levels of judgment. In verse 22, the word judgment likely refers to local tribunals or law courts. Jesus also refers to judgment by the Sanhedrin, the highest level council or court in Jewish life. 
And he refers to the judgment of hellfire, eternal damnation. But given the close parallelism among the first clauses in each illustration, all of the sentences should likely be taken as synonymous and understood to metaphorically refer to eternal judgment. We should note that some translations add the phrase without cause after the term anger. Well, it's unclear whether or not these words were in the original manuscripts, but nevertheless, they do provide a correct translation. How do we know that? How do we know that all anger is not wrong? How do we know that it's not always wrong to refer to someone as a fool? Well, the answer is that Jesus displayed anger and he himself called others fools. We need to think carefully about what Jesus is saying and not saying. It is possible to be angry without sinning. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. We see in Matthew 21.12-27, Jesus displaying godly or righteous anger when he overturns the tables of the temple money changers. In Jesus' parables, God sometimes displays anger and wrath. In Matthew 23.17, Jesus refers to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees as blind fools using the same term he has prohibited in our passage today. But this was not flippant name-calling. The scribes and the Pharisees really were fools because they were blindly allowing their religious practices to distort their lives with God and with others. Why is anger so bad? Why is anger so onerous to God? It's the fact, and we're talking about ungodly, unrighteous anger here. It's the fact that men and women have been created in God's image that lies behind the prohibition of murder and behind Jesus' strong statements about anger. Murder is not the only way to rob someone of life. Jesus is saying that we do the same thing When we are angry, when we're angry with another person, we're guilty of identity theft. When we're angry, we demean them and strip them of the personhood and dignity they possess as God's creation. We also usurp God's role as judge. I know now I'm betting that some of you are saying, can't, but come on, anger can't really be as serious as the physical act of murder. Oh, really? Jesus very clearly stresses the seriousness of anger, of identity theft, in the following verses. He tells us that we need to escape judgment by dealing decisively with anger. He uses two illustrations to focus on the antidote to anger. Reconciliation. The first example refers to situations where we have offended someone else and the other party has something against us. Jesus urges, so if you are offering your gift on the altar, you're bringing your offering on Sunday morning, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Jesus tells us that our acts of worship are meaningless if we aren't pursuing reconciliation in our relationships. The phrase, offering your gift on the altar, refers to temple worship in Jerusalem. That was a dramatic statement for Jesus' Galilean audience. He was saying to them, 
when you guys make the three-day trip to worship at the temple in Jerusalem and you remember all of a sudden that there's a friend who's out of sorts with you, stop what you're doing that very moment and go make things right. Well, that would have meant for a Galilean a three-day journey, three days of walking back to Galilee to eat humble pie in front of the offended party. And then they would have to make the long trip three days back to Jerusalem to make the required sacrificial offering because they weren't optional. Jesus is saying that when another disciple is angry at us, it's our responsibility to seek out that person and attempt to make things right. We're not to come to worship with the knowledge that we've treated someone wrongly. I wonder how our attendance on Sunday morning would be impacted here at HBC and many other churches if we obeyed Jesus' teaching about the urgency of reconciliation. My hunch is that attendance would be quite sparse. My hunch is there would be some Sundays your pastor doesn't show up. Jesus is saying here that true discipleship leads to reconciliation with fellow believers. Interestingly, it's not controlling our own anger that Jesus addresses here, but not provoking anger in others. It's not enough to control our own temper, though that is important. We must seek reconciliation with others who are angry with us, avoiding the blame game. You say, Kent, what if the other party refuses to meet with me? Or what if we meet and talk and they refuse to forgive me? Well, you and I can't force someone else to grant forgiveness. We are bound to pursue reconciliation. Romans twelve eighteen says, If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. We are obligated to do everything we can to achieve reconciliation, but... It may not happen on our preferred timetable. The uncertainty of reconciliation is why we should be so careful with our words and our actions. We can't take words back. And hurt inflicted often leaves lasting scars. Jesus' second example focuses upon reconciliation with those outside the church. He uses the word adversary indicating a non-believer. He says, reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. I assure you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Jesus' second illustration likely assumes a Gentile legal setting, since we don't have any record of the Jews ever imprisoning one another for debt. Imprisonment for debt was generally temporary or for those that lacked bail in a serious case. But here Jesus says that the offender won't get out until they have paid the debt in full. The reality was that a person in prison couldn't produce income. Because they would have no way of paying off the debt, they would remain in prison forever. This story indicates how urgently Jesus Jesus views the importance of reconciliation. He's saying unreconciled anger is the inner equivalency of murder, which is impossible to repay. To leave conflict unreconciled is to allow the sin committed to continue to destroy relationship between people. 
We're reminded through Jesus' illustrations that the way to effectively deal with our anger is not by suppressing it or by giving vent to it, by expressing it. Suppressing anger is as impossible as trying to hold a beach ball under underwater. It just keeps popping back up. Despite the advice of some therapists who advocate screaming or punching something to release emotional steam, giving vent to our anger only intensifies it. We get angrier. The way to see anger subside in our lives is not to suppress it and not to express it. The only way to get rid of anger is to displace it. Ephesians 4.31 says this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Well, what displaces anger? Humility, compassion, and forgiveness. The following verse reveals this reality. It says this, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. When we humble ourselves before God and experience his forgiveness, it's almost impossible for us to be angry with others. When we truly see how much we've been forgiven, it produces a humility within us that sends anger packing. When we recognize how merciful God has been to us, humility acts like a welcome mat in front of our heart that invites the Holy Spirit to to come and displace everything that doesn't look like Jesus, including our anger. Well, how can we summarize our passage today? Jesus is saying that fulfilling the law's command, do not murder, is not accomplished by simply avoiding legal homicide. He shows that the inner intent of the law is to safeguard and to nurture relationship. Jesus tells us that anger is as serious as murder. He's saying that as his disciples who have embraced kingdom rule in our hearts, we must have a daily urgency about displacing anger and pursuing healthy relationships, both with fellow disciples and with non-believers. Anything we do that strips away the personal distinctiveness of another person is sin. It's identity theft, and it's our responsibility to forsake it and to actively and quickly seek reconciliation. How do we repair blown gaskets and prevent new blow-ups? We eat more pie. Humble pie. Let's pray. Father, I know I got walloped pretty hard this week as I prepared this message. I had the privilege or the um, 
And it was a privilege, Lord, of uh, listening and hearing you speak to me about uh, anger in my own life and about the need to seek reconciliation urgently each and every day of my life. Jesus, help, help us as your people, as your disciples, your followers, to hear your words this morning and help us not to just be hearers, but help us to be doers. Father, for anyone right now in this room who's uh, feeling overwhelmed and who knows that they struggle with anger royally on a daily basis, God, would you grant them hope this morning? Would you let them know that you can change their hearts, that you can transform them, and it won't come by suppressing the anger or by expressing the anger. It's only going to come by displacement. And so, Father, would you help each one of us, because this hits home for all of us, whether we're prone to the blow-ups that people see or whether we blow up on the inside. God, would you help us to know that you are here to help us and you are here to change us. We can't change ourselves. But as we submit to your rule, as we submit to your lordship, as we release control of our lives to you and as we choose to be obedient, and sometimes that means going to somebody else and said, man, I blew it. I was wrong. I sinned against you. Lord, Give us the grace that we need and let us know, cause us to know this morning that we can experience change, that we can become more like your son, Jesus Christ. And as we do, the world will see something different in us that causes them to sit up and take notice and want to know this God that we know. Father, thank you for your spirit that's at work in our hearts even now. May you continue that work within us throughout this day and throughout the rest of this week. And Lord, we thank you that you are with us and that we don't walk this journey alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.